Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to CIO Leadership Live. I'm Mary Fran Johnson, your host for today's show and a contributing columnist on CIO.com, where I write about business strategy and boardroom issues for technology leaders. Twice a month, we produce CIO Leadership Live with the support of my colleagues at CIO.com and the CIO Executive Council. We're streaming live to you right now, both on LinkedIn and Twitter, and we welcome all of our viewers to take part in this conversation today by sending in your questions as you're watching and they're coming up in your mind. We've got one of our editors is watching the feed and will be relaying those questions to me and I will be passing them along to our guest. So we will watch for your questions and we'll do our best to respond during the show. Joining me today is CIO Ian Law who is the Chief Information Officer of San Francisco International Airport. Ian is a business-savvy CIO and an award-winning IT innovator with deep experience across the public and private sector organizations around the world. He joined SFO as the Chief Information Officer in late 2013. Ranking among the top 10 busiest airports in America, SFO is the largest airport in the Bay Area and the second busiest one in California, right next to LA. Ian is very well known across the international airline industry for his leadership and his board service on the Airports Council International and the International Air Transport Association. He is also a co-holder of a patent for technology that manages rideshare operators such as Uber and Lyft, and is now used at many other U.S. airports. Ian and his team, in fact, won a CIO 100 Innovation Award for this technology in 2016. And the very same year, he was honored for his exceptional leadership by the American Association of Airport Executives. He's a published author and a speaker, and we've been so fortunate to have him on our CIO stages a couple of times in recent years. Before he joined SFO in 2013, Ian was a co-founder of Vivendar Limited in the UK, an internet services company. And before that, he was the CEO of his own London-based strategy consultancy and a practice leader with KPMG in the UK. Welcome, Ian. It's great to have you here today. Thank you so much, Mary Fran. It's great to be with you. I think I feel like we have so much to talk about. We, we do. And if we had talked six months ago, it would be an entirely different conversation. So let's start out with the most important kind of top of mind question for all of us. How are you and your team doing? What's new in your lives several months now into the global pandemic? Thank you. We're all very well, um, safe, thankfully, and healthy, which is um, the most important thing. Um, we've had, obviously, a, like many IT teams, a very busy six months. We were one of those um, teams migrations that um, I've heard many of my predecessors on your podcast talking about these lightning fast migrations to Zoom and Teams and so on. We were, we were in that category as well. But, you know, they, once IT played a very big role um, as we rolled into this pandemic with, um, with deploying teams, with reprioritizing projects, with working more with the industry to see what we can do um, to help re-energize it. Um, and also our business has just a new requirement for a lot of new information when something like this happens. So our analytics teams um, have been very, very busy um, in the, with the onset of this, but as well as getting themselves to safety um, and to their, we're now, we're normally an on-site operation. All of our staff work on site at the airport. 
we're now 85% uh, working from home. Mm-hmm. So as well as getting themselves up to speed with the new tools and getting themselves home, they've also had to get all of their colleagues um, into the same position. So they've done a really fantastic job and I'm very proud of them. Yes. Well, and um, I know you're you're a huge booster of your IT group, and I think I think they return the love. I, it's uh, it, because the, all those innovation awards that SFO has mm-hmm. in recent years, at least two or three of our CIO 100s, those are all very much a team effort. Um, I was thinking, yeah, you, you definitely, as an airport, you are a very on-site organization. There are a number of jobs that are part of an airline industry that you really can't do from home. Um, how has that? How has that shift had an impact on the priorities that uh, you know that kind of line up for you as the CIO? Well, we at the early on into the pandemic, we. We took, um, we looked at our priorities from the back against the backdrop of probably three objectives. One was to protect and keep safe our passengers, employees, and our community. Keep in mind, we're a bridge to our community at SFO. We're a bridge to San Francisco and the Bay Area community. Um, secondly, it was to see what could, with this quiet time, or low operating period, how could we utilize that that time in the airport? Have we projects we could bring forward? Other things we could do. And thirdly, how can we contribute to re-energizing the industry? Um, Mm -hmm. I think we, you know, one airport or one airline isn't going to restore um, passenger and government confidence in travel. That's something we need to do as a collective. And I think technology has got a big place, a big role to play in that. Yes. Well, you mentioned that um, early on what you were doing uh, well, two things. One is that you're very well trained already to deal with emergencies to, and uh, to respond to that. So I want to talk a little bit about that. But also the fact that you could tune the facility to the demand. You're able to close down some areas. Let's start out talking a little bit about what did happen to the traffic in one of the busiest airports in the country. You described the early days of it, how dramatically the traffic changed. And that... Yeah. Had- yeah, <laughs> I, I can give you a good example of that. So those those early days in April were, were kind of the, the trough in in all of this. And um, that that impact on the in, the whole industry was seismic. And to give you the SFO example of this in early April, we would typically let's say in 2019, we would typically have 20 or 75,000 outbound passengers a day. So that's 150,000 in and out or, or filling and emptying three football stadiums is probably a better way to, to frame that. And that 75,000 dropped to 4,000 just in those early days of April a day. And our 44 international airlines operating here dropped down to four operating in early April. So that, that, was, that was a shock to the system. Now, I'm glad to say that the you know, we're back up to about half of the international airlines now operating, uh, putting their flights back on. And there are more coming on during this month of September and in October. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we're still and the passenger numbers have certainly come back quite a bit. Um, helped in the United States, particularly because we have a, a big domestic travel market. If you think some countries only have an international market and the international has been hit, quit, hit quite hard by this. But um you know, it's still it's still in the call it fifteen to thirty percent range compared to the twenty nineteen numbers across the industry. So it's um, you know we're still we're still down in there. Yeah, well, and I think uh, one of the times we talked, you said that everyone was really busy, but it was unnaturally quiet. So yes, yes. Right, talk about that because that was something where it was one of those 
taking advantage of a crisis that you were doing on the, just in the IT side in terms of getting some things done. You mentioned being able to in, in set up Wi-Fi in one of the areas that you needed everybody out of there anyway. Yeah, I, I, as, we, as we rolled into the, the pandemic, and, and I think as we discussed before, you know, we, we train for emergency exercises, um, not, not of this length normally, but we do tabletop exercises for different types of emergencies. And, and so I think we're, we gel as a, as a leadership team, as a management team at the airport into that mode of dealing with an emergency quite well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, it's kind of had three cycles, really. There was that pandemic shock, first of all, where those early few weeks where really the information cycle is going at at a great rate and it's very hard to make a lot of broad decisions to do things but you you narrow it in on the few things you can do um, and consolidate your position as it were to an extent and accept that it's going to be a while before all of the facts are on the table mm-hmm. then i think there's that pandemic post shock um, where we're reprioritizing projects and um and getting into replanning what our recovery in the medium term would look like Mm-hmm. And then the, I know people refer to it as the new normal, I'll, I'll call it the pandemic normal, we're still in a pandemic, and I think this is the normal at the moment, um, where we're actually just, ro- you know, rolling out those different plans. Mm-hmm. Um, so that period right from, from the start of the pandemic, for us, even though the passenger numbers and the, and the um, flight numbers have dropped quite significantly, was actually extraordinarily busy, like it is for so many other businesses when you're trying to just A, figure out what's the future looking like as best you can make it out, and B, then planning and um, and rolling into that. Mm-hmm. Well, and um, one of the things you remarked on was that the CIO's agenda is changing so much. And we talked about that in a couple of senses. One, in terms of the areas you're focused on and the things you can take advantage of, but also an emerging role of CIOs more as chief communicators, um, which I wanted to get into that a little bit because I think that that is a really intriguing way to look at it. It's not one of the things we usually, we talk about CIOs and being, you know, the business strategists and connecting with their business colleagues. We talk about that all the time, but the idea about of CIOs essentially having more of their hands on the wheel when it comes to communicating messages from the organization, in this case, to the airport community or to your travelers. Yes. You know, everybody obviously wants to know what's going on. And um, and as I said earlier as well, the industry, you know, one, one airport doesn't do it all or one airline. Communication both across the airport community, call it horizontally and vertically with with the travel and hospitality industry, with our local communities, with the airlines themselves, mm-hmm. um, is really important. And I think in that er- certainly in that early stage, um, what you're trying to do is communicate as much as possible to hear what's going on for them and what you're seeing yourself and how you're responding to it. So, you know, early on we could see as the demand was dropping uh, to a point you alluded to earlier, we thought it was a good idea to close half of our international terminal. Mm-hmm. And um, but, you know, you, you don't do that unilaterally. You've, we've got to discuss that with people. We've got to discuss that with people who operate businesses in there, work out contingency plans for them. Yeah. Um, so I think, you know, all of that speaks to um, um, a, a large degree of communication. And I think right now, the way it is, you know, if I compare this to this month, last year, as it were, um, there's still quite a, 
a lot of constant communication across the industry as we try to figure out, you know, better ways through this to restore confidence in travel. So, yeah. you know, if, if one thing, if, if one of the things that have certainly changed for me in this pandemic are the 6 a.m. calls and the 10 p.m. calls, um, are, there's a lot more of them now at the moment. Mm -hmm. Well, you're very active just internationally with other airport execs around the world. Um, talk a little bit about your work there. I know you are, are on the board and are, you know, chairman of certain committees for the different airport organizations. I, I take it that the dominant topic is dealing with and recovering from the pandemic. <laughs> but maybe, uh, you, maybe you there's right. bigger going on there. <laughs> well, yeah, so at different levels, there's there's a lot of coordination going on between airports. I think the thing to remember with airports is we're not, you know, competing businesses. Um, it doesn't help us for another airport not to be doing well. Um, so I think the CIOs of the airports are very good collaborators in that way. Um, in North America, they come together every two weeks to, and, and that is part of us trying to find, let's say, new technologies to put into airports that will help with, it could be temperature screening or any of these other things that help us um, get through COVID uh, and the pandemic. And so that team, will we will then farm out subgroups where one, you know, two, for example, at the moment, we're investigating whether virtual queuing would be a technology that's worth putting into airports, where rather than you forming a physical line and then the, the physical distancing being closer um, could we virtually queue you into something into a let's say a checkpoint or a bag to collect a bag so that your your dwell time in in um, more populated areas is far smaller hmm. um, and so at, in the, at the North America level we have two airports who have issued RFPs for that technology and the rest of us are watching this to see you know is it the, where you know the jury's out on the technology whether it's whether it's a solution that could work in an airport. Then internationally, um, we're, as again, as we came together and, and discussed back in April and May, that we, we really need to find a way, it's going to be very confusing to share for people to understand what's going on at airports from, from the perspective of what are the COVID measures in place? What are the services? Must I wear a mask? Can I buy a mask? Do I give them out free? What right. must passengers do? So we um, came together and said, look, everybody's doing a different thing. We need to share this information globally, mm -hmm. um, which is a collaboration that's not been tried or tested before. But there was a great coalition of the willing around that one. Mm -hmm. And um, in May, we formed, um, we asked airports and business partners to volunteer. We had 11 airports globally who came back in with volunteer, their staff, and two business partners in the US and in the UK. Um, and they formed a team and developed an information gathering portal for 63 data points from each air, each contributing airport. Mm -hmm. um, and they've now published an app for that. There's an app on in the IT and the Apple Store called Check and Fly, um, which allows you to get information about um, COVID measures at different at the contributing airports. And they've also published an API for the industry to access and so on. So as of this morning. There are 210 airports globally contributing to this, about 42% of last year's passenger traffic representing that volume. So this is growing um, and it's, it's an initiative of a different sort. Um, it's not something we don't normally go out and build these global information hubs. No, exactly. And that I love that idea, the coalition of the willing, you know, all of those people getting together and that uh, you and I have talked about this before. Yeah. 
it's such a great way to think about it with an as an airport as not just a bridge into the community but something of a nation state in and of itself because as you made the point that uh, airlines and airports have a retail relationship with customers and consumers who are there to buy the service of getting on a plane and going somewhere but that you also have all sorts of governmental rules and regulations that are kind of overarching on all of that um, what has has anything significant changed in that over the last few months? Are there things, issues that you think are emerging when you think about airports as those nation states um, and, and the way that airports have to deal with local, state, local, and federal government? Well, well I think that, you know, if you think of pre-pandemic, so I think things are change, have changed and are changing. Yeah. Um, if you think pre-pandemic, the you know, the rules, um, the health rules and the immigration rules and so on that, that were in place at airports, obviously passed down by federal governments and, and what have you, um, were fairly well understood. They don't change dramatically very often. Mm -hmm. um, now we're, we kind of two things are happening. Um, one is, I think, quarantining, contact tracing, COVID and antigen testing and vaccinations when they come will all be an integral part of travel in one way or shape or form in the future. Okay. And the second thing is that while it would be great to have a global rule about these things, because then we would all know exactly what we need to do, irrespective of where we're going, the local at the country level and even region and city level, there will be requirements as well set around protecting local communities. And there'll be a big political interest in that for obvious reasons. Um, and so you, you can see that now, um, you know, contact tracing is required or requested when you travel to New York. It's not required when you travel to San Francisco. Um, so, you know, within the same country, we've got we've got different rules. Um, but also the the quarantining periods, I've heard of countries with quarantining periods of up to 28 days. Many of them are 14 days for people coming from um, from different countries. Um, I like the way um, last week the Airports Council International, our representative body in Montreal and, and IATA that represents the airlines, um, wrote to um, uh, presented papers to ICAO at the, at, the, um, to, at the United Nations level, essentially, where they're, they're talking about measures that we can implement around the world. And they talk about risk equalization. And so having different measures in place depending on different routes. So it's almost bilateral agreements between between certainly countries, if not even airports, where um, certain testing requirements are in place if you want to travel from A to B, but they're not in place if you want to go from B to C. So, so there's a quite a degree of volatility in these measures. And I think that makes it very, that's confusing for passengers. Mm -hmm. And um, if we don't do something about it, which I think we can, and I think technology plays a very big role there. And it's difficult for airlines to operate in that framework as well. Yes. Well, and each of these groups has, in the past anyway, has kind of had its own community that it would check in with, right? I mean, pilots and air, yeah. air, air uh, airlines have particular, their tribes, and then the airports, the airport executives have each other, and then there's yeah. government transportation organizations. What is the organization that is the place where everybody can come together? Is that that, that United Nations of, of air industry that you mentioned? I, I think that's that's a great question because I think the answer is that it's not one, but mm -hmm. it's several collaborating together. 
Okay. Now, they do collaborate on many things. As I said, those those three large representative organizations are are, are meeting, I believe, even this week to, to, to try and come up with the next set of, of recommendations and practices that, that we should adopt as, as, a, as a global industry. But um, it, it really does take... I think, you know, you, what you've alluded to is kind of the horizontal integration, you know, the airlines across the airlines and the airports across the airports. But really for this to work, for me to make sure that when you're buying a ticket to San Francisco, that you're very clear on the requirements at San Francisco, you, you can't, you're, you're not going to come to San Francisco as a source of that information necessarily. You, may, you would hope to get it from the airline. Mm-hmm. And so, because you're, you're, they have a retail relationship with you. And or or whomever, by the way, that could be an Expedia or, you know, hotels.com and that mix as well. So I think that 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 vertical sharing of this, you know, real time and accurate information is going to be really important to to, to declutter and deconfuse the situation for people, while at the same time adhering to, you know, local rules and and, and sensitivities. Well, funny, and it's listening to you as a, a longtime media professional. This sounds to me like you need essentially an airline industry CNN, you know, <laughs> so kind of on top of all the stuff and can do the bulletins. And here's what you need to know today. It's sort of breaking news. Are you volunteering? <clears throat> I absolutely. <laughs> I do run my own media consultancy now, so you know we could absolutely talk about that. Uh, we have our first question from our alert of viewers, and this will be—it's—it's um, it's a. It's not quite as global a question as I've been asking you, so we can think more about technology. How are you using IoT, Internet of Things, and other technologies, or what do you know about that, to service the planes as fast as possible and reduce fuel cost? Is that something that, as an airport executive, you get very deep into, or what have you been hearing? Not, not so much on the fueling side, where you know, we, our our interest on the fueling side is is sustainability and biofuels. Actually, with just to, as an aside to to answering this question, um, there, I think there are there are a lot of technologies uh, to your question earlier about reprioritization that that. We've looked at getting into the airport sooner. Um, not so much around the IoT and the airline side of it, um, you know, on the airfield. Um, that said, what I think a game changer for managing the efficiency on the airfield, you know, in normal times, um, are intelligent cameras and AI. And, um, and that's, uh, that's a pilot program that a number of airports have in place at the moment. And we're, pilot, we're, looking, we're beginning a pilot on that at SFO. Oh, interesting. Well, the um, I guess I was also thinking about your priorities list, and every CIO I've talked to has mentioned how very quickly uh, video technology has been taken up. You know, things that we thought would take two years for people to get used to uh, took two weeks. Um, yes. Anything else like that on your list? Something that you really thought it would take a while before people got used to thinking this way, but now everybody, there's been a fast uptake. Um. I think one that was certainly, I think the broader area of biometrics is probably the area to talk about in that regard. I mean, there are a number of things, um, you know, a lot of concessionaires moving more to payless, or to, sorry, to touchless payment. Yeah. Um, but really the, the story I think is, is on the biometric side. Mm-hmm. And so for us, we had a project going for a while, as a number of airports have in the United States, to implement biometrics at international departure. 
okay. um, which is um, which were which is a essentially a CBP requirement in this country, um, mm-hmm. and as that's being rolled out. But it also allows airlines to board people without any without them having to take their boarding passes or documents out of their pockets and and not having a document exchange normally with the gate agent. Yes. And and as a touchless technology. So, you know, they're they're fundamentally two things you're trying to do for passengers in the airports during a pandemic. And that is help them keep their distance um, from each other. That's my comment earlier about virtual queuing. And, and there's some video technologies can help with that as well. And the other one is to keep it as touchless as possible. And on the biometric side, we're, we're obviously concentrating on this biometric exit. That's a, a, the departure for um, international flights. That's a program we, we accelerated dramatically, but also have had great help from our airline partners taking on because it's also a benefit and a safety benefit, if you like, to their staff. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's less document handling and passing backwards and forwards. Now they just walk up to the camera, the camera scans them, approves whether they can board the flight or not, and, and off they go. Right. Um, I think there's more room to grow in that area. Um, I think biometrics on um, for domestic departure might be um, would be of value, certainly to explore. It's, it's got a few different nuances to it, but it's, it's certainly something we, we would like to look at. Um, and of course, we're we're also starting to implement biometrics or the Customs and Border Protection is in our um, immigration arrivals. So mm-hmm. again, less touch points with the officers um, because now a lot of the information they're looking for, they don't have to handle and, and thumb through your passport. They will get that from the biometric camera as you as you approach them. So th- that's really been the, the one that we've focused a lot on accelerating. Um, there, there are a number of other ones you mentioned earlier around the terminal um, work. You know, when we closed the international half of our international terminal, mm-hmm. we had for quite a while been saying that we wanted to upgrade the Wi-Fi, the free public Wi-Fi in there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of those terminals where normally you can only get a maintenance window between 2 and 4 a.m. in the morning. So um, not a popular time to, to start to try and upgrade Wi-Fi. Um, so now we had... We had a run of it for you know yeah. several weeks. So um, we did a very big upgrade there. That terminal opened up yesterday. Again, we closed it on the first of April. It reopened, or that boarding area reopened yesterday. Um, I haven't been down there yet, but I'm I'm hoping to uh, check out the Wi-Fi later on today because I'm it should be a lot better than it was. Um, but there are also big network upgrade projects as well. Well, I know your uh, your Terminal 1 at SFO had a big, huge, very artistic and gorgeous upgrade. Because I remember the first time I walked through it, I was texting you and saying, wow, this is impressive. <laughs> so I imagine when we go back to airports, we're going to expect all kinds of, you know, wonderful upgrades that have been happening. Kind of like while you were sleeping Here's what we were doing. <laughs> well, you know, there's um, um, there are also those things that what can we do now that, you know, that if we did it in two years time mm-hmm. would be problematic, would be would be problematic for everybody. And and outside leaving aside IT for a second, um, we announced last week that we're going to do we have a runway upgrade, which these runway upgrades, which is a resurfacing of a runway, which requires the closure of the runway for the duration of the resurfacing. Um, that was due to take place in 2022. And we announced last week that we've now brought that forward and it's going to begin in a few weeks time. Mm-hmm. So, well, you know, a good example of just getting something done now rather than late. Yes. Well, and, and we also had one question already, which I think we've covered about the possibility of uh, doing away with boarding passes 
you know, where you just increasingly now you just show your phone. But I was thinking we talked about document exchange and how that's a very handsy kind of process. You know, you're yes. just you're touching each other back and forth. An even handsier process at the airport, of course, happens when you go through security. And I know that TSA and the security stuff, that they're, they're one of the clients you have to deal with in the airports. But do you have anything you can fill us in on that? Uh, are the TSA officials, are they part of all these consortia and these discussions? Because that's actually one of the places now where you get a lot more personal attention at airports, depending on what buzzer goes off. Yes, I think you're, you're. I think there's more that can be done in that in that checkpoint area. Um, when I compare it with um, checkpoints in some other countries, um, mm -hmm. many of them have now deployed e-gates, um, so that you you don't have that document exchange with a document checker as you go through. Um, that's been more problematic in the United States because we have all of these state level driver's licenses that one needs to be able to recognize. But as, as that starts to harmonize now, um, hmm. the, the possibilities to implement things like e-gates and again, have less document exchange and, and also be able to line people into those that security process with more distance between them. Mm -hmm. um, it becomes a possibility when you do that. And I know that, the, you know, the TSA, um, we're in constant contact with them on this, as many other airports are. They're, they're very active with working with all of us to, to mm -hmm. see how can we get um, that type of technology into the process and, and coupled, by the way, because I think that couples automatically with biometrics. And what you can start to see come together then in the airport experience in the United States would be I could drop my bag off self-service, which at the moment can't be done, um, using biometrics, using facial biometrics. I, if I want to get a boarding pass printed, I could do that using facial biometrics. So that's all touchless. I can go through security using facial biometrics um, and I can, I can board the plane again without document exchange using facial biometrics. So there's, there are some very exciting opportunities I think coming up for our industry in the next few years and and I know that there's there's a strong desire in the industry to start bringing these things forward now if we can do it because it also plays to the health side of the um, of our concerns yes exactly um, one of the and related to the security topic one of the questions that has come in about is dealing with cyber threats such as ransomware has as a CIO have you um, I don't expect you to lay out for us everything you do in cyber, but um, has the have the threat levels notably changed, or do, did you have to beef up your team on security? Um, what what would you how would you answer a question about dealing with cyber threats? Has it changed much during the pandemic? Yeah, not not so much beefing up, but I think um, certainly the different types of threats. Um, started coming through, um, you know, in the early summer, we started seeing um, and, you know, getting briefings on a number of different things that, that um, seem to be, you know, kind of of the time, as it were, um, rather than your, your regular garden variety. Um, <laughs> I think it's worth remembering that, you know, airports are, are critical national infrastructure, so they are targets. Um, and so there's always, a, you know, a vigilance in the community, particularly. And going back to my point earlier, that's one of the areas that the airport CIO community um, communicates with each other quite a lot on, um, because it's, you know, it's likely that if something is happening in one place, it's it's going to it's going to come to you as well. 
So um, that that early warning through that that collaboration and that communication is really important. Well, that's great. Well, one of the things I, uh, and this was probably just me and wishful thinking, that at the end of this, as we feel safer and confidence returns and we travel more, it will actually, it sounds like it could be a more streamlined and pleasant tri uh, trip through the airport. Um, how optimistic are you about that happening? Um, I'm optimistic that we're, you know, we, I know we are doing things now that will make it easier because it is making it easier today. You know, my biometric exit um, departures, international departures is a good example of that. Um, arrivals and immigration is also a good example. Um, I, I think that to my, my two points earlier about the, you know, that the health side of this is going to be a mainstay part of travel as well for us in the future. Mm -hmm. um, and that it's going to be different in different places. And I think that there's a there's a great opportunity for the international community, you know, a group of airline CIOs, airport CIOs and um, regulators to come together, throw away our old way of process of doing things, which is being um, a more loosely coupled working together, if you like, because obviously we've got our own lanes to swim in um, normally and have a more tightly coupled way of working um, to deliver the the what I think really needs to be a global single point, single source information hub about COVID and health measures in different airports that feed into the airline ticket selling process and the ticket processing process, as it were, as you're. So they're reminding you before as the retail relationship with you before you travel. By the way, please note that in you know Singapore, this is the this is what is required and, and so on, because these these. Um, there's a lot of complexity in this still. And I think we need to do as much as we can as an IT community to help the rest of the industry um, smoothen that out and simplify it mm -hmm. um, so that we can just get that confidence, both our local governments being confident and our national governments being confident that airports aren't the source of a problem or airlines aren't the source of a problem. Um, and that passengers are also just really clear on, you know, if you want to travel and visit your family, what are, what do you need to do? I know you and I talk about that a lot about how we, we do. get into Ireland. Um, the um, and I wanted to I wanted to call attention to and talk a little bit about the article that you wrote. It was kind of an opinion editorial sort of piece in the airline and in an airline industry magazine. And I thought there were some wonderful points that you made in that. We've talked about some of them already. You know about the coalition that's needed across uh, across airlines themselves and airports and government officials, but also the um, the way that you are watching and that air, airline executives now are watching particular industries to see how they're dealing with the health and safety and wellness of their customers. And retail came up as a big example. Why? Talk a little bit about that. Why retail more than, I don't know, say the builders of airplanes or factories or uh, what is it that retail is showing us that you think is really worth watching these days? Well, well, you know, retail outlets and malls and so on are convergence points um, for the public, um, as are airports. And so there's there's a and also we have a lot of retail in the airport, um, you know, duty free and, and all of that. But but I think it was it came for me really out of a personal experience back in um, May, I think it was mm -hmm. when 
you know, I, I think at the other side of, as the pandemic came through first, I think, you know, as a world, we probably looked at it and thought, you know, maybe if we just hunker down for four weeks, this thing will go away. And if, and I recall looking at, you know, press releases, you know, press articles at the time saying, you know, it looks like we'll have to work from home till the end of May. Um, you know, but but now in retrospect, you know, this thing has bedded in firmly for quite a while. But but back in May, as that started to become more obvious, um, there's a local, you know, large, well-known U.S. store that um, that we went to and um, they had <clears throat> completely in in I think in no time flat reorganized the entire store um, they had a single point of entry a single point of exit they were metering customers coming in so only certain number in the store at any one time yeah. they had moved they had made wider their aisles their shopping aisles to make more space so that you know that is not an insignificant task I assume I'm, I'm not a retailer but I, I guess that's quite a big deal in, in one of these in one of these stores they had put up screens all around the you know the perspex screens all around the checkout counters and so on and so forth so and it it it, it happened you know it, it was a very singular focus now of course the the thing they have on their side is if you're one retailer you can do that. You can, right. you know, send the commands down the organization and get everybody mobilized in one direction. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's more complicated in our industry as we're trying to coordinate it across an industry. But I, I certainly, what I admired was that um, they, you know, they clearly saw a need to do something urgently mm -hmm. um, and they reacted to it very quickly. And that's very much um, what we in our industry are trying to do, you know, as individual airports um, and airlines, obviously, um, and as a collective as well. Yeah. Well, and that um, I, I kind of share your astonishment with that because we got into a period in April and May when you just didn't expect places to be open. And then all and even little boutiques and small health food markets, you were getting emails that said, you know, we're open again, we're open again. Yes. And I went to one over uh, nearby where I live in, in Concord, Mass. And I started walking into the store and someone said, oh, uh, there's a line. And there were like three people on the yeah. sidewalk, six feet apart on their designated spots. And it took about 10 minutes to get in. And this is a tiny little store. And when you got in, you noticed that the aisles were all one way with arrows showing you there. Cause that's happened to me a few times in the grocery store. I'll realize that I'm driving the wrong way on an aisle that's supposed to go the other way. So hopefully, I don't know if we get good enough with biometrics, something may like flash a warning at you that you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. Um, the, um, one of the things you, you uh, I think that point is such a good one about not making sure the airport and the airlines don't become a portal for bad things to pass through you know, for, for infections to start and all that. And um, I, one of the phases, the, um, on the technology side, you mentioned that it has, this has really accelerated your team's learning in agile and how has, as a methodology and a, and an approach to developing technology and rolling it out, what has changed about agile for you at SFO? <laughs> Well, we we have a we have a um, a, a large, for us a large program which is an agile development, and the you know as we were going through that program we shifted to that 
that for all of that team, home working. So it was interesting to see that. And, and my learning from that was really that program didn't skip a beat all the way through. That that, that team has been tremendous um, in how they, you know, they were here on a Friday. They were gone on a Monday. Yeah. But the program carried on going. But I think I think really what what ex, what caught my eye with it was that international project I mentioned earlier with these these 11 airports and the business partners to develop this information hub for health information. So, you know, this COVID information under the auspices of this Airports Council International, by the way, I should say. That's a team of nearly 30 people um, working, you know, all around the world on a program using agile techniques and a lot of the tools and how they collaborate with each other is it's just a sight to behold. It is fantastic what you know to stand up the platform that they did with all of the features that, that it's got within two months is something that five years ago or ten years ago I don't think we we could have imagined. Um, yes, there's a very long list of failed coalitions in yes. the technology industry. I mean, we can. Yes start back in the risk alliances, the RISC, back when it was a type of computer and going yes. on to uh, all the open standards and open sources warfare between the tech vendors. Have you seen um, a different, more open attitude on the part of the big vendors of these technologies as well? Because that's often a big part of the problem is that their commercial impetus is to get more customers to buy their products. And it's never been a huge driving force to get their products working with everybody else's. So I, when you deal with your vendors today, you know what I mean? I mean, when you yeah, deal yeah. with vendors today, are you seeing a different a scramble toward a new attitude on this? Or am I just being a Pollyanna about the whole thing? <laughs> no, I, I, I don't think you are. I think the I think the answer is that I am seeing that. Um, I, in fact, I just had a, a call with the you know, a major vendor in our in our industry um, earlier this morning, and and like it is with many of the others, the, the conversation is you know starts with how can we help. Um, I think they've they've all really stood up um, to be enormously helpful. Now, you know, I think that's you know we talk actually about the remote working as as you know I want about this because it's an interesting angle to it. These are relationships that have been built up over years and. Yes. that we, the industry, have with those business partners. Those business partners sit on committees with us and so on. Mm -hmm. So we have the relationships that where you know they can call us if, if there's something they need to talk about and we can call them. And everybody has been helpful towards everybody else. You know, the common equation, the common driver is if passengers aren't flying, then none of us are in business. So, um, you know, I, I think we are all also galvanized by one mutual objective, and that is to restore confidence in our industry. Yeah. Well, and, and, and survival really does tend to focus the conversation, doesn't yes. it? Yes. Um, the, um, I, I like the idea, too, that you mentioned that uh, when we talked earlier about emerging from a retrenchment phase to a recovery phase, um, do you how and, and nobody can predict when this will end, but are you seeing signs of real recovery going on? You mentioned that traffic is again way up and you've got more airlines are flying. I mean, there does seem to be a cautious reentry into 
Um, I don't like calling it the new normal either because I, I've been calling it the next new normal because I want to look ahead to what the new normal will be like. Um, but the idea of the recovery phase of it, um, what, what sort of things should travelers be looking for at airports and from airlines as retrenchment uh, starts to move into recovery? Yeah, um, you know, to that, in the early stages of this, we, as I mentioned earlier, we started developing our own recovery plan. And, and I say that because uh, the recovery plan that, that we've published looks out to 2024. So, okay, you know, it will be great if when we, you know, when we see the, 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 the spring shoots of recovery sooner, uh, we'd be delighted with that. But you know, we've also got to take a pragmatic view on, on how long this can take to, to come through. And that's why we, we've looked out that far. Yeah. Um, but but the signs are that, that, that things are things are certainly improving. We, we're seeing two things, really. One is that airlines um, are returning. As I mentioned earlier, we had dropped to, you know, only four and now we're back to half of our full complement. Um, now, they're not all flying every day that the same routes they were flying before. And they're doing that depending on demand. But um, there is, you know, there are a lot of concerted efforts in the industry to to get to get airlines and um, going again and get um, parts of airports that were closed reopened. As I said, we just reopened our our other um, boarding, our international boarding area A yesterday. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that the thing on the table at the moment is is that assurance between, you know, going from one place to another that COVID is not being transported. I think that's the, you know, the simple and blunt way of saying it. And what we're seeing now across the world are airports opening a different testing facilities, airlines in some cases also opening some testing facilities. So there's a a big emphasis now on testing. And and to your question, what Mm -hmm. can people expect to see as they they come back? Mm -hmm. They can expect to see that as they do, as we can see today, different countries will be firming up on the measures that they're going to require, mostly around testing and ultimately around vaccination, more than likely, would be my guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and passengers will be looking for, how can I get that test that I need to have before I go to that country? So again, you know, there's a big industry working on making sure we can provide that. Either that's available in an airport, we're not testers, we're not you know, health professionals, um, mm-hmm. but it's a, an available service in the airport or it's available near the airport or in the region of the airport. Um, at SFO, we opened um, a testing facility last week, mm-hmm. um, which we use at the moment only for testing um, employees and crew. So there are some countries require air crews to be tested before the crews depart from San Francisco um, mm-hmm. and they're therefore tested here um, on our facility. Uh, but that's a, that's something that a, a health company has come in and set up under contract to us. Okay. Well, and I've heard other CIOs too talk about um, related to travel, but also other things, the notion that you have a health passport, the way when kind of like when our kids were little, when you go to the doctor, you had to show that they'd had their recent vaccinations or maybe they've been, you know, tested for antibodies or something. I'll bet. Have you been hearing from technology vendors that are developing those sort of products now? Absolutely. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Because. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) It is the. you know, as I said earlier, it's the next it's it will come, I believe, part and parcel with travel for a while. 
Okay. And um, or and maybe for ever, who knows? Um, the you know there was a time, and I remember you know quite a while ago um, when if I was traveling from Europe to um, some countries elsewhere in the world, I needed to have a the flu shot and a typhoid shot and a yellow fever shot, and I had to bring my vaccination card um, with me to allow me to travel. Yes. Um, I think e-vaccination cards are quite likely to be it. I saw um, one healthcare provider um, launch one of these apps the other day. Um, I know there's another one in the United States looking in the tr- specifically in the travel sector to do that as well. So I think, again, that's interesting to see how this is going to develop in your let's in the retail side of it, uh, retail airline retail. I mean, yeah, um, that you know the airline clearly, um, I'm sure, doesn't want to be the custodian of health information, um, but they want to be able to join up as seamlessly as possible with a health app um, in which you keep your test information, vaccination information, and so on and so forth, and you grant them potential access to that. Um, for, you know, for maybe and, and for maybe a specific purpose and for a brief period. Mm-hmm. And then you revoke that again, but you have control over it. So I think there's going to be some very integ- interesting developments on that side and interesting integrations so that that process becomes a seamless one. And you're not having to come up and show, first of all, your boarding pass or first of all, your vaccination pass. And then your boarding pass is a separate thing. But obviously, as an industry, we would all like and I'm sure passengers would like us to bring that together. Yeah. Well, and I have another uh, question about consumers and passengers, and I don't know if any of this has surfaced yet. It's a it's a good one. It's about are consumers going to begin to demand or request greater transparency from airlines, from um, their airports about maintenance issues, scheduled performance, reasons for delays, uh, things like a consumer dashboard that reveals who is doing the best with respect to on-time flights, flights delayed, or airline personnel who've actually fallen ill. I mean, I know that some of this information is available now through different travel apps, but it sounds like almost like a health and safety aspect to that sort of, I'm thinking of the popular travel apps where you can look at who's, who does the best job with baggage handling and that sort of thing. Have you heard any of that? Do you think that that's likely to happen? Um, you're right. I think there are a number of, a number of apps out there already, and, and I certainly a number of sites on the internet that, that rate and grade the performance of you know, different organizations in the travel sector on, on, how they, on what they do. Um, and, you know, and, and against complaints and comments and so on. Sure. Um, I, I haven't heard it on the health side. Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, it, again, that feels more like a regulatory issue. You know, in other words, you're required to, to make those notifications um, or provide that information. And I haven't heard of any of that being, um, being done at the moment. So at the coalition level, that that particular, and that sounds like a real mare's nest to be getting into that because there's, it, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, I think it's an, it's it's more of a national regulatory thing, uh, or, you know, government rule thing. You know, in other words, the United Kingdom could try or you know, might want to require, or France require um, an airline to provide the kind of information that you're talking about or an airport to publish it. You know, we're a public entity as San Francisco, uh, we're a, city, a department of the city and county of San Francisco. So, you know, we publish copious amounts of information all the time um, as part of our, you know, just part of the way we govern our organization. Um, 
but I think the specific requirements around uh, declarations and um, providing metrics and that is, you know, it's normally passed down as a government requirement. Yeah, the um, we've mentioned in, and talked about a lot of different technologies so far, like um, touchless technologies, kiosks where you can just wave something across a screen, um, the, the change with document scanners. Is there any technology that you think will be emerging in the next year or so is more significant. And I'm, I'm thinking about um, blockchain um, because it just, especially if you're tracking things across several different agencies and entities and trying to keep the idea of an online ledger that everybody can tap into to check I know for a long time, I think every time we've talked about blockchain, you've said, yeah, it's a technology in search, search of a reason for being. And I hear that from a lot of CIOs. So I still I still keep testing and asking around, is this the moment uh, for blockchain to show up? What do you think about that now? Um, I mean, I could invent applications for it, uh, you know, and, and a number of the things we're talking about, whether it's health, health information or whatever, uh, I'm sure you could apply it to those. Um, it's one of those technologies that since March, I've heard very little about. Um, oh, all right. In, in other words, it's not one of, you know, in contrast, and, and I can only speak obviously for, for the organization, the industry I work in, but um, in contrast to the AI and the intelligent cameras where, you know, there's all sorts of interesting ideas out there at the moment about how they could be applied. Um, but I less so on the blockchain side at the moment. In the travel industry pre COVID. Um, there have been there are some international projects underway to use blockchain um, for essentially that biometric pre-clearing people when they travel from one country to another internationally. So yeah. um, as you travel, you know, as you cross borders, there's a, you know, the in the blockchain, the in, the relevant information is kept so that you can um, so that you're already authenticated when you go to cross a border and, and it, it doesn't seem like everybody's got to, to start from scratch to check up on you as it were. Um, and that's and there are some very interesting projects. There was a pilot taking place on that with I think the World Economic Forum has been working on this um, and they were doing a pilot between Amsterdam and Canada, Toronto, I'm guessing. Um, but I'm not sure where um, where they're up to on that, but I'm not seeing anything specific. You know, I'm not hearing anything specific on the, the the pandemic side where people are saying in the aviation sector, we absolutely have to have blockchain come up. Maybe. Right, right. Well, and that's why I asked. Mm. I thought if anybody had gotten a heads up about that, it would probably be you these days, <laughs> since you're in touch with so many people around the world. Um, in these last few minutes of our discussion, I would love to hear... Uh, some of your thoughts about leadership. You are um, a much awarded and, and, and greatly admired CIO in various industries. I especially like the point that you were making in the article that you wrote um, for the um, airline magazine, where you said, it's not that we need to do more, it's that we need to do things differently. And so as a leader, I know that encouraging people to think outside their various boxes this does seem like like the best of time and the worst of times for that. So, um, from a leader's point of view, what are 
what are the approaches that you're taking now, the kind of things that you would advise other CIOs to be thinking about in dealing with your staff and dealing with all of the various entities that you have to juggle now in your job as a CIO? You're the chief communicator. You could become the chief medical officer. You know, there's just so many different roles, but you don't want to take on more. You want to be doing things differently. So what would you advise as a leader? How do you do things differently these days in ways that you think everybody should be, you know, kind of a passing it along? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I've kind of cracked the code on any of this, but I think that, um, you know, for me, what shifted quite a lot is that I've had, you know, all of my airport team has been on site up to a point that I can call by them and see how they're doing. And, you know, you get a feeling around people, whether they're up or down or if there's anything we need to, we mm. need to uh, talk about or whatever. Um, and 85% of them are offsite now. So I've, I've found it, um, you know, without badgering people, difficult to connect in. And, and I, you know, I, I, I message people kind of one-on-ones just to see how they're doing. But um, I think that is a challenge generally. You know, I, I think you and I spoke about this quite a while back that, Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've shifted now to the role of CIOs being thinking about more, thinking more about, you know, employee mental health. Um, they're like, not on site and in front of you anymore. You know, odd. yeah. Um, um, and I think that's, you know, so these are these are the new things to to um, for us to kind of put on the agenda um, mm-hmm. and to start thinking about and, and all the time trying to understand how do I. Where, how do I play a role in this and how can I be helpful to those teams, but at the same time having less of a connection to them, as it were, and from a day-to-day perspective. And, you know, I'm, I guess I'm in a specific situation compared to a number of CIOs that you will interview who have, you know, teams spread out all around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, I've, I have them within a, a stone's throw. I think the other thing is that, um, and for some reason this came back to, to, came to mind recently, I read an article last year about um, how leaders, um, you know, through surveys and that have been found to quite often underrate their own impact. And I mm. think, you know, and the, and the kind of the thrust of it was know your own impact. Yeah. Um, and I think that the, the IT community, particularly through this pandemic, and not just in the aviation side, um, has got a very big role to play. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that role is really determined by those CIOs who are out there Mm-hmm. you know, pushing new ideas and, and challenging and testing. Yes. Um, and I think that's something that I find myself coming back to from time to time thinking, wondering, am I doing, you know, all I can do or is there more? What more can we do? Because I think, you know, that we are really down to that now. Um, and um, so I think I think knowing your own impact, I'm not sure I could say I, I, I've got the answer to that either, but um, it's something certainly that uh, resonates with me for the time we're in at the moment. Well, and I think that's a great way to think about it because a, a lot of leaders, they've worked very hard to get into the positions they're in and they tend to forget along the way that they're operating in a glass house, essentially yeah. looking to them for various things. Yes. And, you know, if you're all just focused on keeping the CEO and the board happy, it is easy to lose touch. And yeah. days, you know, the uh, I've been seeing more articles lately about whether, especially for introverted 
people rather than extroverts, rather than my people who just love to be talking to somebody. For introverts, there was an article I saw, I, I think, in the Times about um, people's social skills kind of atrophying. And, you know, I mean, you're, you're a chatty Irishman, so I don't expect that to happen with you, but it's more of an effort. And think about the huge percentage of introverts we have in the technology industry and that, you know, but introverts need empathy as well and they need to show it. And it's, uh, it's just something that's great to keep in mind. There's a, um, somebody I know in the UK had set up a business um, this several years ago, but now it's really coming to the fore where they... Um, they're essentially a, a, an, or, an organization that works for companies, keeping in touch with the company staff on their behalf, on their behalf mm -hmm. with a specific focus around the, you know, every, the mental health, um, just how are you doing? And, and that, that I say that because it's, you know, we're at the moment, we're doing it as a do it yourself um as i'm sure most cios are doing you know but the idea that if we're switching to more of an operating mode like this and i'm not sure that we will or we won't but if we do get into this more of a home working environment remote working environment um in the future are we also going to be contracting is it going to be normal to contract with organizations that will be part of the care of our staff with us that's um, a great Which, uh, yeah, as, as a mind bender. I know the next new normal, you know. <laughs> well, Ian, thank you so much for making the time to join us here today. I have wanted to get you on the show for the longest time, and we finally managed. We finally managed it. So I really appreciate all your time and your wonderful thoughts about things today. Thank you. It was a huge pleasure, Mary Fran. Thank you very much. Well, if you joined us late for CIO Leadership Live, do not despair. You can watch my full interview with Ian Law. He is the Chief Information Officer of SFO, San Francisco International Airport. And I encourage you to check in to our IDG uh, tech YouTube channel, which is called Tech Talk. And if you sign up and subscribe for free to that channel, you'll never miss another CIO Leadership Live again. You can also catch our conversation as an audio podcast because by tomorrow we will have this 60-minute this conversation with Ian uploaded to all the popular podcast platforms. I hope you enjoyed the conversation today with Ian as much as I did, and that you'll join us for our next episode of Leadership Live, which will be on Wednesday, September 16th, again at noon Eastern. And I'll be joined by CIO Shamim Mohammed, who is the in charge of all the technology behind CarMax, one of the largest used car auto dealers in the nation. Thanks so much for tuning in today. We really appreciate those of you who sent in questions. And thanks again to my colleagues at CIO.com and especially our CIO Executive Council for their ongoing support and sponsorship of this program. Stay safe and well, and we'll see you here next time. This podcast is produced by IDG Communications Incorporated.